Area 10 Faith Community meets in the historic Bird Theater in Carytown in Richmond, Virginia. As of August 2nd, we have resumed in-person worship services on Sunday mornings at 10 a.m. We are committed to the health and safety of our families and will continue to offer our simultaneous live stream at youtube.com slash area 10 faith community. We hope you'll join us at the Bird Theater again soon, but in the meantime, we're providing the best possible online experience we can for you. Now, on to this week's message. So have you ever tried to make a deal with God? If you've ever tried it, and I'm sure we all have done it at some point or another, it kind of sounds like this. This is basically what you said. God, if you will just blank, then I will blank, right? So you fill in the blanks there, but we've, we've all done it, right? God, if you would just allow her to say yes when I ask her out, then I will serve you. God, if you will give me an A on this test, then I will go to church on Sunday. God, if you will let that check come through and that job work out, I will give money back to you, I promise. Like, we've we've made those kind of deals, and we've kind of treated God in some ways over the years like the sort of the genie in the bottle. Like, okay, I've got some wishes, I've got some things that I want, and God, let's let's kind of make a deal, and you you kind of grant my wishes, and then I'll do some things on on your behalf, you know? And in some ways, I understand why we do that. Because if, if God is real and we can be in a personal relationship with him, then we think about it in terms of relationships and personal relationships. And sometimes we make deals with other people. We, in our relationship, we, we, we say, hey, I'll do this if you do this. We kind of go back and forth with people, and we, and we kind of have that with other people that we know, people that we love. And so it makes sense that if we believe in God and he's real and personable, uh, that we could have that kind of relationship with, with him. But I think often when we do this, when we make deals with God, we're basically saying to God, hey, I want you, but I want you under certain conditions, and I kind of want you on my terms. Like, I want to set the terms of the deal, and then I want you to agree to it, Um, and as long as you do that, we're going to be good. Uh, we, do, we do that a lot. We, and we kind of approach God as if he's there just waiting to, to make a deal with us or, or to, to work with us on our terms. There's actually a book that came out in 2005 by the sociologist Christian Smith, and it was a book called Soul Searching, and it was inside the religious and spiritual views of American teenagers. So he did this survey, thousands of people, thousands of teenagers, and boiled down their religious views, the average American teenager in 2005, boiled down their religious views to five things, which, he, which was then has been termed moralistic therapeutic deism, okay? Don't, don't get too hung up on all what all those words are going to mean. It's, it's not going to matter. But the, these five things were the attitudes of teenagers in 2005. Now, keep in mind that teenagers in 2005, like, have children and mortgages now. So that's what's... That, these are, these are adults at this point, right? But here are the five things, and I want you to hear these because these are so pervasive in the West and in American culture in particular. I want you to hear these and understand that this is kind of the average spiritual worldview of, of an American. Uh, number one, a God exists uh, who, who created and or, ordered the world and watches over human life on earth. Number two, God wants people to be good, nice, and fair to each other as taught in the Bible and most world religions. Number three, the central goal of life is to be happy and to feel good about oneself. Number four, God does not need to be particularly involved in one's life except when God is needed to resolve a problem. And number five, good people go to heaven when they die. 
Now, those are kind of the average spiritual beliefs as, as they surveyed and said, kind of, what do Americans believe about God, that kind of thing. Um, and I think those things are actually not the gospel, and they're a very squishy sort of modern attempt at an equivalent to something kind of Christian. And I don't have time to pick all of those apart, all, all, all go through all of those today. But I do want to point to, to number four, this idea. Uh, can you put it back on the screen, just back up to it? Number four. Um, it, it says this, God does not need to be particularly involved in one's life except when God is needed to resolve a problem. God, I don't need you unless I do, in which case if you could just hang out in the background and in that moment I will reach out to you and at that point we will probably strike a deal. Um, I, I, I just need you, God, to show up and get me out of a jam. And when we do this, we, 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 change who, we try to change who God is, and we try to make him a little more, and I think these five things sort of, we're making God in, in our own image. The philosopher Voltaire said this, in the beginning God created man in his own image, and man has been trying to repay the favor ever since. We've looked back at God and said, I'm going to make God in my image rather than me being in his, in his image. Um, and, and when we do that, we don't actually get to know the God that is, that is, that is the true God, the God of the Scriptures. We don't get to know him we, we, because we end up thinking that God is um, us but a little better. So God is nice but nicer than me. I'm trying to be nice and kind. God is that but more. Um, God dislikes the people that I dislike. We sort of project ourselves onto God and say that he is just a bigger, more cosmic and better version of us. So I want to talk about knowing who the, the real God is and how we can be in relationship with him because we're in this series called Keeping It 100 and we're talking about how do you have a real authentic relationship with the true living God uh, that is revealed in the scriptures, that is, that is over the universe. How do we do that? And last week we said, well, the starting point is you have to recognize who you are. And, and that's not all good news. There's a lot of bad news there that we are sinners, that's what we talked about last week. We are broken people. And when I say broken, it would be very easy to slip into the psychological language of broken, flawed, we have trauma, we have hurts, and therefore we make mistakes, and all of that kind of stuff. But the scripture goes farther than that. It's not just that we're broken and flawed and we have trauma and we make mistakes. We sin, which is a mistake you did on purpose, Right? You ever, ever say that? You're, you're going out, you're like, I'm going to make some bad decisions this weekend. Just wait, right? We sort of say that like half-jokingly, bragging, right? It, it's not a mistake if you did it on purpose, right? And there are things, and we all have them. Romans 3 tells us all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. All of us have done this. We've all made mistakes on purpose. We've all sinned. We've all fallen short of God in his perfect perfection, his holiness, and, and how he designed humanity to live and, and the way he designed us to work with one another. We've all fallen short of that stuff at some point, and, and, we, and we do pretty, pretty regularly. And that's, that's the, the, the bad news. Um, we've intentionally made bad choices, bad choices about food. We've intentionally decided to gossip about a coworker. We've in, 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 in intentionally uh, done some really stupid things, and, and all of us have have done that. And that puts us in a weird spot with God because that's, if that's our starting point, if that's who we are, how do we relate to a God who's perfect, who doesn't make mistakes, who doesn't sin, who hasn't blown it like, like we have? How do we get into that relationship? Because honestly, when you're trying to get in a relationship with someone who's even just a little bit better than you, it makes you uncomfortable. If you're around someone that's like super holy, that's like uncomfortable for you. How do we get into a relationship with a perfect and holy, powerful God when, when we're sinners. 
Well, the Bible gives us some, some guidelines on that, about how to relate to God. And it actually re- refers to God in a couple different ways that is maybe helpful for us as like metaphors or pictures of what it would look like to relate to him. First of all, it, the Bible reveals God to us as a father. Now, there's a lot of scriptures that talk about that. One of the ones I like is when God's talking about how he delivered the Israelites out of Egypt, and it says this in Deuteronomy 131, and in the wilderness where you have seen how the Lord your God carried you as a man carries his son all the way that you went until you came to this place. I love this idea that, that, that his people are in the wilderness and God picks them up in his arms and carries them as a man carries his son. You know, I'm, my kid's tired, they don't want to hike anymore, and you pick them up and you carry them. I, I love that father image of God. But to be fair, there are mother images of God in the Old Testament as well. Not as many, but there are a few references to, to God uh, being like a mother or, or expressing something like a mother. Um, and and the, reason, the reason I think it would be inappropriate to say God our mother is because that's not how Jesus talks about it. Yes, there are some metaphors, there's some pictures there for us of, of God having some mothering sort of qualities. But when Jesus refers to God, he refers to God as Abba, Father, our heavenly Father. So he, he sets that relationship for us, that we are to relate to God as a child to a father. And also, the New Testament tells us that we are adopted into the family of God, so there's an adoption piece that's central to the gospel story as well, that Jesus is the natural-born biological son, and that we are children, we are brothers and sisters of Jesus, and therefore we are children of God, we are adopted in. So there's some relationship language the Bible uses when it wants us to explain to us how we relate to God. And the idea of God as Father, for a lot of people, for many of you watching online or in this room, uh, that probably makes sense. You go, God is Father, okay, I can, I can get into that. But that doesn't work for everybody. If you said to me, and, and really in, in, as a teenager and into my adult life, if you said, hey, um, God is your Father, I would be like, what does that even mean? Like, he's a Father, so he drinks too much. Uh, he tells a lot of lies, fathers illegitimate children, and then leaves on her and bails on her whole family. Is that what you mean? Because no thanks. Not really into that. And, and truthfully, for me, it has, been, it has been difficult in my adult life to work through that and work through when someone says God is a father, I'm like, ugh, I don't, I don't like that. And, and what does that look like and how is that different than what my experience of a father was? So there's, there's this father image of God that we can relate to him that way. There's also the idea that God's a teacher. You see this most clearly in Jesus. Jesus is often referred to as good teacher, and he is God in the flesh on earth, so he's a teacher. And I like that idea, especially if you had good teachers growing up in your life. If you have good experience with teachers, the idea that God is a teacher makes sense to you, and it feels pretty good. God's my teacher. He, he communicates to me. He speaks truth, and I, I listen. He, he's got wisdom and knowledge that I don't have. That makes a ton of sense to me. I like that. I, I like the idea. I, it's not hard for me to believe that he knows more than I do, and therefore I can learn from him as a student to a teacher. That's a pretty cool way to relate to God as well. But I think there's actually another way to relate to God, and it's the one I want us to focus on. And this actually is seen almost throughout all of Scripture, Really from the beginning to the end, there's, there's this other connection we have with God that, that uh, is, is powerful, and it's one we don't emphasize a lot. We talk about God as Father, that's, that could be comforting. We, we may be his teacher, that's great. But there's another way God is spoken of in, in the Scripture 
Um, and it's the idea that God relates to us in a partnership, that he's a partner with us. You see this in creation. God creates the heaven and the earth. He makes the raw materials. And the first thing he tells his creation, first thing he tells Adam and Eve is, go make more. Go make something out of the raw materials I gave you. Here's the, here's the garden. Go, you know, you're going to build out cities. You're going to build, you're going to, I gave you the stuff to work with. You're going to make more. You're going to make more children. You're going you're gonna to be fruitful and multiply and like cover this thing. And, and he partners with us. He doesn't do it all for us. He partners with us in the act and the ongoing work of, of creation and, and, and taking care of what, what he has created. And then in the New Testament, we are partners with him in making disciples and, and sharing, sharing our faith and evangelism. This is a partnership that God enters into with us. He's, he calls us to make disciples of Jesus and tell other people about Jesus. He uses us, the, the scripture says, God makes his appeal to the world through us. So there's a partnership there. God doesn't just go, I'll just tell everybody about me. He says, you, my people, my followers, the people who are with me, I want to do a partnership with you. You tell people about me and then I will work on their hearts. And so there's this partnership that we enter into in the New Testament as well that you see. So all throughout Scripture, there's a, a, a partnership. Um, now, how does God do that? How does he partner with us? Well, he makes, um, a, it's, it's kind of like a formal agreement between us as, as members of two parties in a, in a partnership. He makes an agreement, and in the, in the Scripture, the word for that kind of agreement is a covenant Covenant. Uh, let me give you the definition. Covenant is a chosen relationship or partnership in which two parties make binding promises to each other and work together to reach a common goal. Now, the thing maybe that you would most think of when you think of that is a marriage, right? You've got a, a, relation, a chosen relationship or partnership, and then there's two parties, they're making binding promises. I promise, you know, to take for richer, for poorer, sickness and health. That is covenant sort of language. We're saying this is, we're, we're going to work on this together. We're going to partner for a common purpose. We're going to raise children. We're going to have, have family. We're going to grow. We're going to tie our finances together, whatever. That's a, a covenant, and that is the kind of relationship that God enters into us. And it is different from a contract, which is probably the closest thing we think of is, hey, we both signed this contract, and if you break it and, and you're out, then I'm out. Like, it's the end of the contract. It doesn't quite work like that. A covenant is a little bit, um, a little bit different. There are several major covenants in the Bible that God enters with people. Um, Noah, there's one with Noah. There's one then later with Abraham, which we'll look at in a second. There's one with Moses. There's one with David. Um, and then there's some New Testament stuff, which we'll get into next week. But there's these covenant relationships where God says, all right, we're going to work on this together. And there's a, there's a pattern, and I'll tell you why all of this matters in a minute. We'll, we'll get to it. But there's a pattern in the covenants um, of, of how they work, and it's actually um, modeled or, or similar to uh, this ancient in the ancient Near East, this, these treaties called a suzerain treaty. In the suzerain treaty, there's a particular way these things function, and when God enters into a covenant, he uses that kind of style of a formal agreement to enter, in, enter into with people. Um, a suzerain treaty uh, had basically three parts. You would, you would give, there, there would be a, a written or verbal, maybe a preamble, where um, the suzerain, which would be like the king, so these are treaties kings would enter into with each other, or a king and a servant, or like a vassal, right? So the king and a vassal would, would enter into this treaty, where in the preamble at the beginning of the treaty, the king says, uh, this is who we are, 
This is our relationship and goes through a little bit of the history of our relationship and kind of establishes this is what I have done for you as my servant or whatever. And so that's the start of it. The second piece of it um, is, is terms and conditions. Okay, you're gonna do this. I'm gonna do this. Here's how this is going to work. Um, th- these are the things you're committing to. These are the things I'm committing to. The terms and conditions are laid out after the preamble. And then finally, uh, there's a piece of blessings and curses. If you do these things, all of this stuff will happen to you, and this is what I will commit to you if you hold up your end of this. And if you don't do these things, here are the bad things that are going to happen. Um, so there's a suzerain treaty. This is, this is a very common thing in the ancient world, and you actually see it show up in Scripture all the time. Now, the way you ratify that kind of covenant, that kind of treaty together, is really gross. And I, and I want you to know how this works. The way you would ratify that kind of covenant and, and to prove that you're really serious about it is they would take animals, you know, a goat or uh, birds and stuff, they would cut them in half, like perfect split them in half, lay out the two pieces side by side, sort of symmetrical in like a, in like a line. So animals split in half in a line. And then... To ratify the covenant, you and the person you're making the covenant with, the treaty with, you walk through the center of the torn of the split carcasses. Cool, right? That I'm like, I'm glad we moved up to a handshake to ratify a covenant, because that someone someone was like, Can we stop killing animals? Can we just like maybe do this? And that will be good. We'll call it good. But that's what they did. It was a bloody gross thing. It's one of those things you read about the ancient world. You're like, how could they ever? And where was PETA? And where was like, what just happened? But that's, that's how it works. They split animals and walk through the center. And the idea was, hey, as, as you walk through, walking through that with someone, you were saying, if I break this covenant, may it be done to me as was done to these animals. So you, it is a bloody and I am serious kind of thing. It's like, yo, split me apart and may I, may, may I be split apart and die like these animals if I break what we're committing to here. So, I mean, it's a little firmer than a handshake, right? It, like, we're, we're serious about it. Now, with that as the background, I want you to see one of the covenants that God makes with humanity, and then we'll talk about why that matters for us. God makes a covenant with Abram, uh, a guy, Abram, who God eventually renames to Abraham, and it's originally spoken of in Genesis 12, but then it's kind of reiterated here in Genesis 15. And I want you to see it. This, is, uh, this goes way back, right, in the ancient world. Genesis 15, uh, let me read it to you, starting with verse 1. After these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Fear not, Abram, I am your shield. Your reward shall be very great. But Abram said, O Lord God, what will you give me? For I continue childless, and the heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus. And Abraham, and Abraham said, Behold, you have given me no offspring, and a member of my household would be my heir. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him, This man shall not be your heir, your very own son shall be your heir. And he brought him outside and said, Look toward heaven and number the stars if you are able to number them. Then, at, at, then he said to him, So shall your offspring be. And he believed the Lord, and it counted to him as righteousness. And he said to him, I am the Lord who brought you out of out from Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land to possess. So in Genesis 12, God makes a promise to Abram and says, here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to make your descendants as numerous as the stars in the sky. I'm going to give you your own land, uh, and your people are going to bless the whole world. 
Um, this is problematic because when he got this, he, Abram and his wife were, were very old and they had no children. So if your descendants are going to be as numerous as stars in the sky, the first thing you need to do is have children. And so Abram, now years later, having this conversation with God, and he's like, yeah, I know you promised all those things, but here's the reality. I don't have a kid. My heir is going to be this other guy. Uh, he's the closest thing I've got as a living relative. You know, he's going to be it. You didn't give me any offspring. And God says, No. And he starts, and, and he's going to lay out, we're going to do this suzerain treaty thing. He's going to lay out to him the terms. But before he gets to the terms, he's going to do this preamble where he says, look, here's the history between you and I. This is what I have promised to you. I am the, oh, that's fun. I am the God who makes the lights crazy. It's awesome. Uh, I am the God who uh, made this commitment to you, and I will... I will fulfill it. I'm the one who brought you out of Ur of Chaldeans. I, I brought you to this place. I'm going to do something here, is the, this commitment that God makes to him and, and entering the treaty. So uh, they, they uh, so look at, oh, oh, one more piece I want to point out. It says in there, if you caught it real quickly, it says, Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. So all Ab- God said, I'm going to give you family, I'm going to give you all this stuff, and all that Abraham did was go, I believe you, and God was like, you're a righteous man. Okay, that's it. Like God comes, show, picture that. God shows up in your life and says, I'm going to do all these awesome things for you, and you're like, I believe it. And they're like, man, you're so righteous. Like, it's weird, right? We'll come back to that. Look at what it, what it says in... Um, so Abraham asked for some certainty from God. He's like, man, I'm not sure... I know you've said you're going to do all these things, but I'm not sure. Verse 8 says this. But he said, O Lord God, how am I to know that I shall possess it? He said to him, bring me a heifer three years old, a female goat three years old, a ram three years old, a turtle dove, and a young pigeon. You see where this is going with all the animals? And he brought him all these, cut them in half, and laid each half over against the other. But he did not cut the birds in half. They're, They're difficult. And when, and when, I don't, it's weird. And when birds of prey came down on the carcasses, Abram drove them away. Okay, we can kind of picture that. All right, again, we're setting up this cutting these animals in half. This is a gross thing. It's the ancient world. This is how they rolled. All right, next verses. As the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell on Abram. And behold, dreadful and great darkness fell upon him. Then the Lord said to Abram, Know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in the land that is not theirs and will be servants there, and they will be afflicted for 400 years. He's, he's predicting slavery in Egypt. That's going to happen for 400 years of the Israelites. Um, but, I, but I will bring judgment on the nation that they serve, and afterward that they shall come out with great possessions. As for... Yourself, yourself, you shall go to your fathers in peace. You shall be buried in a good old age, and they shall come back here in the fourth generation, for the iniquities of the Amorites is not yet complete. When the sun had gone down, it was dark. Behold, a smoking firepot and a flaming torch passed between these pieces. On that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abraham, Abram, saying, To your offspring I give this land from the river of Egypt to the great river, the river Euphrates. So there's this weird thing that happens is that you, you see this treaty where they walk through the center of the carcasses, but the difference here is that Abram is asleep when it happens. And God appears, the, the manifestation of, of God is this smoking, I was going to say smoking pot, but you'll think of something entirely different if I say that, a smoking fire pot and a flaming torch. This also uh, is 
predictive of and maybe foreshadowing the, the fact that God led the Israelites through the desert with, a, with a, a, a column of fire and a pillar of smoke. These same sort of ideas, this presence of God showing up as fire and smoke. So he, he does this um, and they enter into this covenant. Now there's a couple implications of that. I know that's with Abram and I know it's a long time ago, but here's a couple things that I thought of that I would love for us to get from this. And this is why it matters. Number one, the God of the universe wants to be in relationship with us. That's no small thing. That's a huge thing. The God of the universe, the creator of all, wants to be in relationship with us. It would be so easy for God to look at the world and go, you know what, bag it. Like, it's a mess. Like, I'm sick of how people destroy each other. And, and, and truthfully, with the flood, it, it got to that point that people were wicked and evil all the time. And God's like, I'm going to wipe it out and start again. But, but it would be very easy for God to say, I'm not going to engage. I'm not going to get into that. I'm not going to be a part of that. I'm not, I'm not with that. And, and to step away from it and, and, to, and to just wash his hands of the whole thing and say, this was just a failed experiment of humanity. But he doesn't do that. Consistently, all throughout Scripture, you see God pursuing. I'm, I'm going to join in. I'm going to, um, I'm going to reach out to them. I'm going to love them. I'm going to try to be in relationship with them. That is the point of the covenants: is He's trying to set some terms that we can be in partnership together. And God consistently uh, does that. Um, <clears throat> and it's 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 a powerful thing that God is engaged. He's not distant. He's not in the clouds like Zeus. He's not, um, you know, like just completely separate from us, but that he engages and enters personally. So that's number one. Number two, second thing, God actually holds up both ends of the deal. So if you go back and look at the covenant with Abram, what you, what you should notice there, if you understand how a suzerain treaty works, and we just talked about it, right? What you should notice there is that both parties are supposed to walk through these, these carcasses in order to ratify the treaty to say, I'm in, but they don't. Actually, Abram is asleep for the, co- for the covenant ceremony, the ratification of it. He's asleep. The only one who goes through is God. Now, what does that tell us? Well, I think it tells us you, you're not really going to enter into a deal like that with God um, and, and get that right. Because whatever the terms are, you and I are going to blow it eventually. We're going to blow it. And if, and if the deal is... Um, may it be done to me as was done to these animals, that's not going to go well for us. It's eventually, we're, we're eventually gonna, going to blow it. Um, and God shows up as this torch and goes through the covenant to say, to ratify the covenant. God is saying, I will hold up my end of the deal, and when you blow it, I will hold up your end of the deal too. That's really powerful. And this whole thing actually foreshadows Jesus himself. When Jesus goes to the cross, he is being split open. May it be done to him as was done to those animals. He is being split open in this relationship between God and humanity. He is being torn and, and, and beaten and bruised and, and crucified. And he's doing that, and that is God holding up our end of the deal and his own end of the deal. That is God saying, I will pay for the way you're going to blow this as well. And Jesus takes our sins on the cross because we were never going to be able to uh, hold, hold all this up. He's faithful to us, and then he also pays for our lack of faith, our unfaithfulness. Now, you may hear all that and say, that's kind of interesting, 
but like, what, what should I do with that? Like, what, what am I going to go do this week, Chris? Like, cool. How, how does this relate? Um, and that brings me to number three. What God wants from us is for us to have faith. He wants us to have faith. Now, not just faith. When I say faith, we immediately, in English, with that word, we go to some place of believing in something that's hard to believe in. So when I say God wants us to have faith, you go, oh, God wants me to believe in him, but that's really hard. Or God wants me to believe in the power of prayer or believe that my grandmother's going to get healthy again or believe that, like, all of those things. We, we automatically go to a space in our brains of faith as belief, and particularly belief in things that are hard to believe. Believe when you can't know for sure. And I get that. Um, I get why we go there, but that's not all the word encompasses. The word faith in English pulls from the Latin fide, which means fidelity or loyalty. And so when we read the word faith in the scriptures, what it's really pointing us to is something that is more than just belief. This is why Paul in Romans 4 will talk about Abraham. Thousands of years later, he's going to say, look at the faith of Abraham. Abraham's faith was credited to him as righteousness. That's what Genesis 15 says. It's not, it, Abraham is righteous not because he had faith in, in the sense of, not just because he believed God, but his righteousness actually came because he acted on that belief. God said, leave your land and go to this other place so that I'll show you, and Abraham got up and left. God, he, Abraham's faith wasn't just a belief, it was action as well. He actually did something with his beliefs. His, his, uh, and, and we often talk about faith like it's, just belief or belief plus a little bit of trust. The, the reformers 500 years ago, they talked about faith in, in those terms, and they were arguing against the Catholic Church. The Catholic Church in the 1500s was telling people, hey, you need to do all of these things to really be a follower of Jesus, and the reformers came along and said, no, you don't. You just have to have faith, and I think what they were doing was a necessary correction to the abuses of the church, but it still went a little too far. The point is, your faith should have action to it. Your faith should do something. Um, it's not just supposed to be mental assent. James chapter 2 uh, says it this way. What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? Or if a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warmed and filled, without giving them the things they need for the body, what good is that? So also, faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. But someone will say, you have faith and I have works. Show me a faith apart from your works, and I will show you my faith by my works. James is one of the most direct in the New Testament about this idea, that your faith is, should be indistinguishable from action. Like it, it, the faith and works are tied together. You're doing something, not just believing something. And this is personal for us. We are called to follow God. And we're called to follow God by faith. This is what anyone who's entered into a covenant, anyone who's entered in a relationship with God, this is what it looks like. But we're, we're called to, be, to more than just have faith. We're actually called to be faithful. Maybe that's a better word than having faith. If I said to you, I have faith in my wife, what I mean is, and what you will think I mean is, oh, I believe in her. You think it's a compliment. Oh, you have faith in your wife. That's cool. I believe in her. She's going to accomplish great things. She's awesome. Like, that's what faith in my wife sounds like. I trust her, right? But if I said I'm faithful to my wife, it's different. Now we're talking about consistent action. 
I'm doing something day in and day out in order to be faithful. And so here's my question. In this relationship with God, if we're going to keep it real and be honest and authentic, um, what are you doing to be faithful to God? What are you doing to be faithful? What, is that, what does that look like? I don't mean, do you believe in God? Do you, like, mentally sort of trust him? But what are you actually doing to be faithful, to live it out? I think there's lots of examples of that, how that could look today. For, for many of us uh, in, in this country, faithfulness has looked like being at church every week. It's looked like praying. It's looked like giving financially. It's looked like giving of our time. And those are all good things. So maybe evaluate, am I being faithful? Because a pandemic came along and took some of those things away for people. Sort of the the storm waters rose and some people were sort of washed away in that. And so the question isn't just like, what do you mentally believe? But are you being faithful? Are Are you showing up? Um, with, with any sort of consistency? What does it look like to be faithful in reading, faithful in, in praying, faithful in gathering together with other believers? Now, being faithful might sound dull. I don't think we value faithful. We value new. We value exciting. We, va- we value uh, new opportunity, those sorts of things. Um, we, we, we don't really value like, hey, this is like the tried and true faithful thing, and let's stick with that. But I, but I think a, an authentic relationship with God may not look like the, the new hotness. It may just look like a continual faithfulness. Eugene Peterson, a uh, pastor and author, he described life in Christ, and this is a title of his, one of his books, The Life of Following Jesus. He called it A Long Obedience in the Same Direction. It's a pretty sexy title, isn't it? Long Obedience in the Same Direction. Wow. Sign me up. But that's faithful. That's what that is. And that's what we're called to. So I guess my question is, what does faithful look like for you today? Because that's what God sees as, as righteousness. He sees us being, not just having faith, mental belief, but being faithful people. Let's pray. God, I thank you for... Um, your faithfulness to us, that when we blow it, you're there. When we don't hold up our end of the deal, um, you, you cover that, and you have covered that. But God, you ask us to be faithful, to, to live by faith, to uh, not just trust everything that we can see, but to, to, to go, go deeper than that. And so I pray, uh, I pray that we, we do that. I pray for everyone in the room right now who's struggling with, like, what is faithfulness going to look like for me? I pray that they work that out and, and, uh, and develop some rhythms of consistency um, so, that, so that, we, that we continue in that relationship with you and that uh, we express our love to you um, in, in, in our actions, not just with our words. Thank you, God. Uh, in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.